uh, the thing that keeps coming up uh, this week is, is certainty. Certainty in the world, certainty in life. Uh, when we look at the scripture, there's a certain certainty there, and so we'll talk about that. But uh, everywhere I look, and partially because the lens I'm viewing life through is this week's sermon, I keep seeing certainty. It's at that time of year, right? Tony Romo will get hurt, right? That's, that's Texas certainty, where the Browns will finish 7-9, and nine, right? There's certainty as the fall approaches. That's two weeks in a row with a Browns joke. I'm sorry. Cooler nights, shorter days. I was watching a documentary while putting together Ikea furniture last night. And there's certainty that there's frustration in that. But, but the documentary was, uh, this, it's new, it's called Lo and Behold. And so it's in the theaters, but you can rent it because we live in 2016 and it's a brave new world. And so I'm watching this documentary while I'm putting together furniture, which is a bad combination. And they're talking about the internet and the connected world and how um, there's some certainty as to when it's going to go down. And I'm kind of starting to wonder a little bit, what am I exactly watching? And they have this NASA scientist who uh, says that there's a certainty that sunspots and solar flares will bring down our internet at some point. And she references back to 1859, this thing uh, they call the Carrington event. And so Carrington is the cutest child in the history of the planet. She's sitting in the third row. But it's also um, a scientific thing. This guy named Robert Carrington in 1859 witnessed a sunspot that then took down like the electrical network of the world. And so people who had telegraphs, they melted. And some of them just started telegraphing on their own. The, the sun created this electromagnetic pulse. And they said, if that were to happen today, who knows what would happen? Who knows how long the internet would be down, how long our electrical grid would go down. It was this kind of this whole doomsday scenario. And, and the, the documentarian was like, well, but I mean, how certain is this? And they basically said, it's a matter of, of if. I mean, of when, not if. Like, it's a certainty that the sun will again do this, and it's just a matter of where we are when it happens. And I started thinking, you know, trouble will come. There's a certainty in this world that there, there are just things that are going to happen. You and I are going to walk through this life, and trouble will come upon us. And we've talked about it in this series, that we live in uh, the shadow of death. That there's just this kind of sense of foreboding around us that trouble is on the way and yet we have also seen in the psalm that we have a God who protects us a God who restores us a God who loves us and who intends to be there through the trouble which is where we find ourselves today and so let's read psalm 23 and we'll get started it says the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and the truth contained in it. Father, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and allow us to not only know the truth, but to absorb it and then to live it out in the world around us. And so, Father, thank you for this time and this space and the luxury of getting to sit in your presence and know you better. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing I want to see as we look at the scripture today is I want to look at the very first word in, in in verse 6, the very first word in verse 6 is surely or certainly. Surely 
goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely. This is not an optional thing that's going to come upon us. This is, this is the one certainty that God is putting forth in his word through the psalmist. Surely. With the Lord as my shepherd, surely goodness will come upon me. Sureless loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And this has to be something that we, we like to hear. You look at our world, there will be heartache, there will be pain. And this says, but surely. There's something else there. There's something else there for us. There's something to contain that. And so what I, w- I think I want to start with is to make the statement that life with Jesus doesn't mean that trouble won't come. It just means that God's goodness exists to counteract and comfort us on our way home. So many people uh, sign up for faith, for life with Jesus, and go, okay, now my troubles are behind me. Now I'm okay. Now all the financial pressures, they, they'll be gone, and this relational dysfunction, it'll be gone. And we sign up for Jesus, and as we get Jesus, we're baffled that trouble doesn't go away. For many people, it actually intensifies because now instead of just having normal life to live, you have life to live and you have kind of this moral filter that you have to put things through as well. Life with Jesus doesn't mean troubles won't come. It means that goodness and loving kindness are certain to exist as well. To counteract the trouble of life, to comfort us when trouble hits. Not maybe, but surely, surely. I would say trusting is the hardest thing to do for humanity. Trusting at our base level, it's the hardest thing for us to do, to trust anyone other than ourselves. I know this is true because uh, we have been putting our house together, which means unpacking boxes and hanging things on the wall. My wife and I had a slight disagreement yesterday. She was right. I was wrong. Okay. I was, uh, as most men do, I was over-engineering everything. So to hang something on the wall, sometimes you need a screw because you, you know, you got to really have it on there securely. But, you know, if I was to hang a feather on the wall, I would put an anchor in it and then I'd put a screw in that that's about this long and then I'd hang the feather just to be safe because you never know. And she says, why don't you just use a nail for that? It's so light. And everything in me was like, no, 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 no. I got this. I know what I'm doing. Whose tool bag is it? Mine. Whose toolbox? That's mine. Whose tools? Mine. Who's right? She was. Thought about it for a minute. And I said, I I think I'm going to submit to you. She goes, that means you still think you're right. And I said, no, no. (laughs) No. No. Maybe, maybe. But no. I think think you're right. I think it doesn't need, you know, an 18-inch long industrial screw. I think maybe that, that tiny little nail will do. Sure enough, it did. It saved me some heartache. It saved me a ton of work in measuring this, that, and the other. And I tight this little screw into the wall, and I hang the thing on it, and it's just fine. It's still there this morning. I checked. Why is it so hard to trust somebody other than that voice inside our own head? It's just the human condition. We so want to be our own God. We so want to be our own leader. And so when someone else has an idea... I tell people all the time, like marital counseling comes in and somebody will be asking me, why, why can't my husband just get on board with this? I said, because it wasn't his idea. If you want your husband to do that, you have to let it be his idea. And the same is true. You're going to go to lunch after this. And someone's going to say, where do you want to eat? And the other one will say, I don't care. Right? And everybody knows how's, how's this going to go. You're like, okay, well, let's go here. No, 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 that doesn't sound good. 
So I don't care is like, I do care. I just, I just want it to be my idea. So name some things. This is what we say in my house. Someone will say, name some things. So I just start naming things. I think I outed who's who in this illustration. Anyway, and I'll just name things. And I don't t- care becomes, oh, no, that one sounds good. I mean, I don't care. But if you were going to pick one, that would be the one that make me happy. <laughs> if it's our idea, it's better. There's an actual psychological construct called the Ikea effect. And, and I know this well from having to put together way too much of their furniture in recent days. The Ikea effect says if, it, if you built it, you like it in irrational amounts. It's, it's a stupid $18 stool, but I got this Allen wrench. and You don't know how long I spent on that thing. That's an incredible piece of art. Like, no, that's a cheap plastic stool. But it's true with everything. We always look at our own stuff, our own ideas with a certain glow about it because they're ours. And so that fits in every system of life. It's a, is this system, I designed the system, so it must be the best, or I designed that process, so it must be better. And once we step back and have objective lens on it, a consultant comes in and goes, this is not working, and here's why. And you go, oh, trusting is hard. And God says, surely, surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life. Which is another way of God looking at us and going, listen, Life is hard. Trust me. And everything in us wants to rebel. Everything in us wants to go, yeah, 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 but this is not my idea. And God is going, surely you need to trust me. Trusting a God who didn't abandon his children, but rather sacrificed his own on our behalf. He says, trust me. He says, check my character. Check my resume. When did I withhold from you? When did I hold back from you? When, when was there a time when you were in need and I wasn't there? Trust me. And so then we read the psalm anew and we say, Surely though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and kindness will follow me if I'm in the presence of the Lord. Jesus uh, dealt with some of these ideas as well. In Luke 15, Scripture says that all the tax collectors... And the sinners were coming near to Jesus, and they were listening to him. It says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. And they said, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Because what they're saying is, you're not allowed to eat with sinners. It's unclean for a a righteous Jew to eat with sinners. And the Pharisees are calling him out, saying, this is unclean. You're unrighteous. You say you're the teacher. You say you're a rabbi. You're nothing. Jesus says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one, does not go... And leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says to them, rejoice with me. Have joy with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. So Jesus says, I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What Jesus does to them is he flips the script. They're sitting there saying, you're unclean. And he goes, oh, really? You are. Jesus points out that there's no joy in what they're doing. There's no joy in heaven over 99 self-righteous people who think they're living by the right rules. There's no joy in smug religion. There's no joy in having a club that others aren't allowed in. Because ultimately, that's what the Pharisees were up to. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were basically in a a country club mentality 
Or in this sense, we've said before that it's sin for us is like we were drowning in sin. And Jesus is the coast guard that comes up and lifts us out of the water, rescues us. Take that a different direction. If you're drowning and the lifeboat pulls up beside you and you can climb into the lifeboat. The Pharisees were like those who would climb in the lifeboat and then pull the ladder up behind them so no one else can get in. They're the best at making rules that eliminate other people from joining their class of goodness. And Jesus was there to say, there's no such thing. You can do that all you want, but that's not what we're about. Jesus was against defensive religion that said, I'm in and you're not, and here's why. And so Jesus points out that there's no joy in heaven when the righteous or the religious uh, shake their own celebration. But joy is one who is far becomes near, one who is lost becomes found. So Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who would go and rescue a lost sheep. And he tells this story and he, he paints this picture of the, sh- the shepherd picking the sheep up and gently placing it on his shoulder. Some of you, if you even close your eyes, you could see that stained glass picture of Jesus holding the sheep around his neck. I think the, the chapel we got married in, in downtown San Antonio, I think they have a, a stained glass behind the altar of the, of the shepherd Jesus holding a, a little lamb. And the lamb's like looking at Jesus all sweetly. Jesus is looking at the lamb, and they're having their little moment, and this is this warm picture of Christianity. Jesus carries me. And yet what we said the first week, we're going to say again in the last week, sheep are stupid. Sheep are not smart animals. They're total idiots. And so when you find a wayward sheep, I've asked around, I did some research, I read some books. When you find a wayward sheep, they don't follow you home. It's not a dog. You find a way where sheep, it looks at you, it chews a little bit, and it just keeps going, doing whatever it's doing. And so one reason for this is sheep go where the grass is, right? Sheep go looking for nourishment, but they don't really think critically about it, and so they go wherever they go. So if they need to go up a cliff to get that grass that looks tasty, they go up the cliff. If they need to go to a dangerous spot, they go to a dangerous spot. They go wherever the grass is. The problem is often they get to the grass and they can't get down, which if we think about it, is a lot like us. That often we follow our, our senses, we follow our desires, we follow our intuitions into a place that we think sounds good. We think that's going to satisfy us and we get there and all of a sudden we're in a circumstance that we don't know how to get out. And you look around and you go, I don't know how I got here, but I have no idea how to get out. Some of your testimonies are just blazing examples of how this works. When people say, I never intended to end up there, but I was there and I had no idea how to get out. You and I, we're like sheep sometimes. We just blindly feed on the next thing in front of us. We feed on all sorts of things we think will satisfy. If it's greater status or if it's finding true love. If it's greater wealth or, or maybe a, a more perfect idea of family. Whatever it is, we're feeding on all these little bits of grass hoping that this will satisfy. And what we end up doing is if we get far enough off the path, we look around. We don't know how to get back. We end up desperate, alone, broken, in danger. Maybe the question should be, where are you looking for nourishment other than God right now? Where are you looking for something that will satisfy when ultimately it won't? Ask someone who's been married long enough. They say, our marriage got better once I realized this person was not put on earth to make me happy. God intends for them to make me holy, and oftentimes holiness is a lot harder process than happiness. 
What cliffs are you standing on now hoping that eventually satisfaction will come? Or what cliff are you on right now going, I don't know how to get out of here? So how does the sheep end up on the shoulders of the shepherd? If the animal's an idiot and it won't follow you home, it's actually not the most graceful picture. But what uh, you would read, what a shepherd would tell you is that what they literally have to do is knock the sheep over. They have to go up and push the thing over, like tackle it, you know, or whatever you got to do, wrestling style, and then they wrap the legs up. They have to tie the legs and throw the thing on their shoulder. And the sheep's not looking at him going, what a sweet guy. The sheep's going, man, I was eating that, you know? It's not like a graceful picture of God's great love that he would love us so much that he kind of pets us and we hop up and there's clouds and rainbows and it's all beautiful. This is the picture of who we are. That in my sin, God said, you idiot, you're not coming. And he pushes me over, knocks me down, wraps my legs and throws me on his shoulder and said, if you won't follow me to salvation, I'll drag you there. And this is the picture of our lives. You read scripture you read our lives you read that none of us chose jesus of our own volition i chose sin after sin after sin and somewhere along the line and these great circumstances came to be and my eyes opened up because someone invited me to this church and somebody was sweet to me and somebody ignored the fact that i was a 16 year old kid who was drunk and high in the back of a young life club and they loved me anyway and as a result Jesus. But it wasn't like I skipped into it either. We are like the sheep. And what we see in the scripture, what we see in the psalm, is there is then great joy in heaven as the shepherd walks in with the sheep, as the shepherd ushers the sheep into salvation. Jesus, what he's doing is opening a window into the community of heaven through this parable. What is a community? A community is a group of like-minded individuals that are usually bonded by an intense or significant experience. That's what a community is. So if you're, uh, you graduated from a certain university, there's a reason that's a community for you because you went through four, five, 12 years, whatever you went through, and you, you have a certain shared experience with other people who went there. That's why that feels communal. That's why you cheer for teams on Saturday afternoon because something in you goes, I was one of them. That's why a church feels that way. There's a significance to being part of a community with like-mindedness, with significant experiences shared. So Jesus is being given a hard time because he doesn't uh, do what he's supposed to do because he's eating with tax collectors, because he's receiving sinners. Jesus is being given a hard time. And what he does, instead of saying, you know what, you're right, they don't belong because they're not righteous and they're not law followers, Jesus, all he does is he, he redefines identity in the presence of the Pharisees. He goes, you guys identify by your righteousness. We're not doing that anymore. I'm creating a new significance. The newer significance is not your ability to follow a certain number of laws. The new significance is that if you are with me, that's an even greater identity. Why? Because you and I, were the same. We identify with our most significant or intense experiences. If, if you're a veteran in the room, would you be generous enough to just raise your hand if you're a veteran? I've got a couple. Yeah. You think that through. If some of us that have not been in that situation. Maybe you're an alumni of a high school or a college. Maybe you got some, some certain experiences and you identify with people who've been through that. It is what it is. And there's something different when I talk to a vet. 
And they say, no, no, no. There's no shared experience like the one I have with this guy. He knows what I was like. He knows what I went through, whether it's Afghanistan or Vietnam, whether it's peacetime in Germany, whatever it is. They go, you don't know what it's like until you know that. And that sort of shared, significant, intense experience is undeniable. So that you get two guys that both have the same hat on in the diner that shows what war they were in, which shows what experience they had. And they can look across the room and they know each other and have a bond and a community with each other immediately. Regardless of political affiliation or race or socioeconomics, there's something they share greater. And that's what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees. He's saying, of all the things you choose to identify yourself with, there's something greater. There's something greater. Because most of us, we build our foundational identity on things that make us feel superior. Because it's who we are. So if you went to a great college, you lead with, I went to a great college. You find a way to sneak that into any conversation you can. If you live in a certain neighborhood, you want people to know it. If you have well-adjusted kids, that's the first story you tell. If you make good money, other people can see it. This is what we do. If you're a pastor, which in our society has a certain amount of honor and significance, you hope that someone asks what you do. So you can tell them, oh, I'm a pastor. Because maybe they'll have pity on you because people pity pastors. Or maybe they'll think you're holy because I'm supposed to be. But if I build my identity on that, Man, that's shifting sands. That won't last. That's just pharisaical. That's just the Pharisees saying, look how good I am. And what Jesus came to do is knock the sheep down and say, stop chasing significance everywhere else. It is in my presence, in my presence alone, that you're known and you are loved and you are saved. So Jesus takes sheep, stupid, wayward, hopeless sheep, Sheep needing to be bound and dragged to safety. Sheep desperate for a savior and usually not smart enough to know it. And Jesus gives a new identity. No longer are you identified with yourself, you are identified with me, he says. He gives us a new identity that instead of creating a merit-based pride, creates grace-infused humility. Doesn't that sound great in our world today? To have a people that instead of being in a, living in a merit-based pride culture where everybody has to come up with one thing they've done better than everybody else in order to be significant, we would live in a society based in grace that says, because I was such a sinner and so rescued from my own darkness, I'm freed up that I can serve others. I'm freed up that I can love others regardless of where they are in life. I can, I can give away the love of Jesus without an agenda, without strings attached, without uh, bait and switch on the back end, I live in a grace-based humility culture, and I desire that for everyone I run across. Because the other never wins. Because someone always has more money, someone always has better education, someone always has better kids. There's always somebody who's got a one-up on you. And Jesus flips the whole model and says, rather than one-upping everybody else, how about this, on your knees and serve them. And in John 15, he's telling this to the Pharisees. And you flip a couple pages later in your Bible and you'll see what Jesus means by this. This is not a metaphor. Jesus says, watch me. 
and he lays his life down on behalf of the sheep, of those who didn't even know they were lost. So you and I can say, I'm infinitely lost. I was infinitely blind, but I'm infinitely loved. I'm infinitely cherished. I'm God's treasure. He rejoices in finding me. That picture in the psalm where it says the shepherd rejoices. And Jesus echoes it. He rejoices. And then not only that, but Jesus says he brings him to his friends. He brings this lost sheep and he calls his friends and neighbors and he'll come rejoice with me, which simply means come and have joy like I have joy. Share my joy over this one. That's the picture of heaven. When your heart is healed, when your life is set right, when your identity is based in something greater than status, it's based in Jesus, heaven rejoices. And one taps another on the shoulder and they say, listen, we got another one. Share in my joy, share in the goodness. Shepherd will do anything to bring his son home. And you're not brought home scolded. You're not brought home guilted. You're not brought home expected to now get your stuff together and now act right. You're simply brought home. And this produces a profound joy. An incredible community. When you are in a room full of people who recognize they were once lost and they are now found. People say they sense the spirit sometimes in a room. That's what that is. That's the sense of a people who recognize that I was once so far away and God gave his son to make me free again. And that produces the most incredible kind of community we have on this earth. People who know what it feels like to be drowning in sin and know what it feels like to be rescued by a savior. What I actually like you to do something. If you would look at the person next to you, just look them in the eyes, hold it for one long second. Just long enough to be uncomfortable. You are looking in the eyes of community. Of somebody who knows what it feels like to be lost. And somebody for whom Jesus thought it worthy to lay his life down. Because that's what Jesus does. Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's what he was here to do. So if you read Luke 15... There was a lost sheep, and then there was a lost coin, and then there's a lost son. And every single story, the one who was looking, the one who would do the finding, would stop at nothing to bring the lost thing home. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And he not only saves, he secures. And so it says, and we will live in his house forever. We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Which is the promise, the exclamation point on this whole passage. Because you can read the whole thing and think, well, that's nice, and oh, that shepherd thing is cool, and I I like that. But he won't let it just sit there with with a dot, 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 then what? Psalmist finishes and says, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is this promise that not only are you to be saved, but you will be secured. That we are welcomed back into the house of the Father, and once we are there, we are forever secure. That we're given a foundational new identity And that the most significant thing we can imagine pales in comparison. The best raise, the best job, the best relationship, the best status, the best anything we can imagine pales in comparison to the creator of the universe 
calling us sons and daughters. As rescued ones. As people who have been invited to dwell in the house of the Lord. My prayer is that we would live in that identity fully. The beauty is we don't have to wait until the end of our days to enjoy the depth and the beauty of the presence of God. He's rescued us. He's called us home. And we share in the profound joy of his rescue in places like this, in community. And then when we live out that rescue outside of these walls, there's profound joy in that. We started out saying there's these certainties around us. There's certain lives, there's certain pain, there's certain trouble, but then there's certain rescue. And I would say this is certain. There is a true, sure promise. That God loves us enough to send his son for us. And so today, my prayer is that we will live in that certainty. That we will feel the certain embrace of the true shepherd. That if this five weeks together teaches us nothing, it's to remind us that we have a shepherd who loves us and cares for us intimately. Not a distant God, not a vending machine God where we hope to get what we want. But a God who, even though we don't understand it fully, wants to know us and love us. And so my prayer is that we not only know that truth and we embrace that truth, but we would share that truth with all that we come across. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am humbled by the goodness of your word, by the goodness of your rescue. Father, I would confess that most days I don't consider even needing rescue. Most days I turn around and I try to build my life on the things around me again. On status and wealth, on how many friends I have, or whether or not people think I'm important. Father, I measure myself in the health of my relationships or my bank accounts. I measure myself in what others think of me. God, my desire is that in an increasing measure for me and for this whole community that you would remind us and instill the truth in us that as your sons and daughters, there is no greater significance we need to seek. And rather than make us lazy or despondent, Father, it would inspire us in the full freedom of knowing we can live this life to its fullest. We can chase dreams and fail knowing that ultimately we're secure in you. So I pray for every heart in this room. We know that everyone is in a battle. Everyone is on a journey. Father, be close to those who are hurting this morning. Be comfort to those who need it. God, be a a swift kick, a knockover, and a drag out of those of us that are stuck in a rut. Ultimately, God, we trust you to be God. To remind us that we're not love us no matter what. So Father, thank you for a day like today and a place like this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue with our service at the taking of communion.